0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 2 of the Average to Elite Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and it's safe to say that we're kicking off Season 2 in absolute style. Uh, I have two incredible guests joining me today, and we're going to discuss the incredible and monumental challenge they're going to embark on in about 22 months' time. So this is known as the Great European Triathlon, and the two individuals I have joining me today are the coach's coach, Joe Parrish, who is also my coach. And I also have Mark Rhodes, who is creator of the Hard to Kill program. So in today's discussion, we really got into the that mind-body approach to this challenge. And I know I took a huge amount of um, wisdom and insight in terms of my own mindset, my own physical preparation, uh, my own philosophy in terms of how I approach challenges, um, both from a physical and mental perspective. And I know you guys as athletes also pursuing big goals, uh, you can really take away a huge amount of uh, information and again, just insight and wisdom in terms of how you can plug all this into your own uh, physical, mental preparation and your whole philosophy of how you approach big demanding challenges so like i said this is an incredible episode to kick off season two and i can't wait to get stuck into it so without further further ado let's go right Gentlemen, good afternoon, and thank you for joining me today on this episode of Average to Elite Podcast.
1: Thank you, sir. A a pleasure to be on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having us on. No, it's going to be extremely interesting, today's uh, episode. So basically, we've got one big topic to discuss, and I'm really keen to get a really good insight of what's actually going on, what's happening, what the logistics are, and everything in between. And safe to say that it is pretty big. I remember when I heard the news, I was like, wow, this is bigger than the moon, kind of big. This is large. So guys, I clearly know who you are, uh, but for the listeners who perhaps don't, could you just give yourself a brief introduction and terms of who you are, what you do, and without really disclosing uh, the big challenge and event itself. Go I'll let you go first, mate.
1: <laughs> Thanks, dude. So, uh, uh, I'm Joe Parrish, uh, formerly known uh, on social media, I suppose, as the Coach's Coach. I help busy fit pros stay on top of their own kind of body shape, health, and performance. I'm based in Scotland, Stirling, but originally from uh, the south coast of North England.
0: Very cool. And Joe is actually my coach. So, <laughs> I'm a coach. Joe's a Coach's Coach. And <laughs> we will work on the average to elite physique, which we will certainly be digging into a lot more in uh not so distant future
2: cool. um, uh yeah so so i'm mark rhodes um on instagram i i think my tag now is uh at mark rhodes coaching there's an underscore in between each word obviously founder of the hard to kill podcast um i'm born and raised in the sticks as well out in deepest darkest lincolnshire and then after a brief stint in the military been coaching for about eight years now and done pretty much everything got f- four different medals in four different sports in four different years. So I just try my hat at anything, really. Exactly <laughs> Very nice. I feel
1: like, mate, yeah. we're the same jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. It's exactly why we're doing what we're doing moving forward.
0: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, kind of without further ado, what are you guys doing? Go on, Mark. So uh,
2: I'm assuming the reason you've got it on today is to discuss uh, none other than the great European triathlon. So, I'll start from the beginning, and if we were to rewind, probably, what, four months now, thereabouts, Joe?
1: Yeah, I reckon.
2: Um, You know, we were both kind of talking about the fact that for want of a better phrase, we we just lost a bit of inspiration, a little, a little bit of fire in our belly with just resistance training for the sake of it. Um, and then a couple of days after that conversation, Joe just kind of sent me a message and said, mate, do you fancy doing something fucking stupid? And I was like, yep, don't even know, need to know what it is. I mean, <laughs> and then we jumped on a Zoom session um, and just begun sort of planning. And it was very much kind of at a conceptual stage at this point. Uh, we both had Google Maps up, just kind of figure distances and stuff out. And then after a lot of talking and procrastinating we eventually set up the great Euro triathlon, which is to be a length of a UK cycle. So we're going to cycle from John O'Groats to Dover, which is 850 miles. We're then going to swim the English channel, which is obviously 21 miles. Hopefully you've done correct. And then we will be running from Calais to Paris, which is a further 165 miles. And we'll be doing all of this consecutively in the summer of 2022. Our channel crossing is the 16th to the 23rd
0: of August, 2022. Yes. Wow. That is, um, (laughs) it's fucking crazy, isn't it? (laughs) So no, Um, from like your background, you kind of said that you've done various competitions, various sports. Uh, What is your, clearly this is a triathlon and the mother of all triathlons. Um, Have you actually done triathlons before? Nope. <laughs> <In a word. laughs>
1: I, I, I tried my hand. I, I supported a client through a half Ironman last year, uh, but in terms of you know training, programming, structure, etc., working into it, uh, I think it's safe to say that I was uh, underprepared. Uh, but did 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 a half Ironman last uh, summer, which was um, fantastic slash terrible. Uh, it was uh, was was, an, was was a good experience, but yeah, that's as that's as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean,
2: literally to rewind about eight weeks—probably uh, a bit more than eight weeks ago. It must be closer to twelve weeks now. I couldn't—I couldn't swim. I've never done open water swimming before. I didn't have a wetsuit, so yeah, it's been a bit of a steep learning curve so far.
0: Extremely steep. <laughs> so apart from like reigniting the fire with your training, um, what, why are you doing it? Uh, I'll let you answer this one, Joe.
1: I think for us, it was just that kind of thought process of, you know, wanting to kind of do more, be more, achieve more, really see how far we could take ourselves physically, mentally and emotionally. Um, and I think for us, it's always that thought process of like, have no regrets. And uh, one big thing that always stands out in my mind, I know with Mark as well as that when you get to the end, and you look back and you reflect on what you've accomplished and what you've achieved, like, I want to uh, look back and go, that was really fucking cool. Um, and how epic was that? And just looking at, the experiences that you've now kind of like gone all in on the challenges, the struggle, uh, the difficulties that have kind of arisen that have helped you kind of grow, I suppose, and uh, have helped you kind of build even more resilience and hopefully along the way kind of inspire a lot of other people within their own kind of personal journey uh, to get outside of their comfort zone. Like, my, both myself and Mark, I think I've got our Frosty's Level 1 swimming badge from when we were about 12. And that's as far as our swimming prowess goes, you know. I didn't even get that, mate. I didn't <laughs> even get that. <laughs> and uh, we, we always want to have this thought process of, you know, being able to take people also on a journey to show people what's really possible. And I think for the both of us as well, this thought process of, you know, self-actualization, looking at doing something that's so much bigger and greater than just you. And I think then mentally, what you're able to find and the fortitude you have and what you can tap into, I also believe, is incredibly uh, like powerful um, and empowering. So yeah, I think there's self uh, selfish reasons behind it, but there's also kind of selfless um, principles as well tied in there.
0: One hundred percent. I'm certainly leading from the front, like no doubt about that for sure. Um, so obviously there's quite a lot to look into in terms of the preparation side of things both the mental and physical the logistics side of things like what do you think is going to be like the main physical and mental characteristics you need to make sure this challenge, this event is a success because i believe that nobody's done and a triathlon to this extent before or definitely not this type of triathlon anyway the european triathlon
2: as far as we're aware to all of the kind of semi-passive research I've done so far, it's never been done in one extended event. Obviously there's the arch to the arch, which I think is very, very similar, but I think it goes from the arch and under the arch in Paris. Um, but yeah, it's never been done to, to this extent. And with regards to physical characteristics, at least, I think the key word is efficiency um it's all about being as efficient as humanly possible like to the extent uh, where we've already we had a four-hour masterclass with uh, a guy called adam ocean walker last week who holds the record for swimming the seven toughest oceans on earth and he devised like the most efficient fastest and like most energy saving swim technique ever devised he, essentially he had numerous like crippling injuries from swimming the way in which he used to, which is the normally conformed way of swimming, which involves quite a high elbow and a high pull, which is very stressful on the glenohumeral joint. He has so many surgeries. They were based like, that look, you're never going to swim again. So he had to devise this system that he taught us, which is fucking uber hard to learn by the way. Um, so, just things like that, we're going to depths and uncovering new areas of, of sports to allow us to be as efficient as possible because any idiot can get really tired and really out of breath. The whole idea is going to be to, to stay as fresh as possible and use as little energy as possible for the entire duration because we're going to be using nothing but our own arms and legs to cover close to a thousand miles. So,
0: it's going to be pretty tough. 100%. Like, when I, one of the first things I thought when I heard about this event, well, I guess two things was like, holy shit, that's crazy. And then second of all is, how do you look at the fuel side of all of this? So I just go straight mm-hmm. back to my nutritional roots and just start thinking about that. And whenever I look at preparing anybody for an event, a challenge or anything like that, look at the research, see what that says, and then work back from it essentially to fill in the gaps. With this, there is absolutely no research. No one's ever done anything like this. So it's kind of a case of you're going into the dark a little bit. You don't really know. So it is a case of, Yes, using that principles of being super efficient and then just see where it gets and then just adapt over time based on how you're progressing and daily freshness and all those kind of wellness markers.
1: Yeah, and I think the big thing that me and Mark took inspiration from was, you know, like Ross Edgley's um, kind of great British swim as well. I think he kind of, um, as he said, it was as much of a kind of eating challenge as it was a kind of swimming, swimming challenge. And I think, you know, our event is going to be very, very similar as well, you know, so I think that's where we also kind of, Draw and extract kind of valuable lessons from like people that have done potentially something similar, um, and obviously just look at yeah what worked well for them, what didn't, and what was their kind of rationale behind it.
0: Yep, hundred percent, one hundred percent. So looking at like the physical kind of characteristics of this event, like obviously looking at um, when Ross actually like swam around the UK, he wasn't necessarily built to swim, so to speak, but his level of muscle mass and stuff helped him crash through like massive waves and all that kind of stuff like you guys aren't exactly small endurance guys, you're big dudes, you're strong. So do you see this as something that's going to complement or complicate this event itself?
2: See, That's one of the first comments that I received from pretty much everyone in the endurance community when we first went on record as saying we were going to do this. And it almost, it began to grate on me a little bit because I was like, okay, you've got all these people who are supposedly prolific in, in whatever sport, whatever discipline. um would sort of say oh we need to lose 10 kilos of muscle mass first and i was like that's really really not helpful so it actually um put a little bit of fire in my belly to be like you know what like i'm gonna prove a fucking point here um and there's gonna be an element of like you're gonna atrophy just by the nature of the sheer amount of volume we are gonna atrophy but in no way shape or form am i gonna surrender to just being like a weak individual just because it doesn't fit with a characteristic mold of an endurance athlete not that you know all endurance athletes are weak by any stretch of imagination but yeah um, i think i turn a lot of heads or i used to certainly when i turned up open water swimming and bike shops and went running and stuff like that <laughs> i turn quite a lot of heads but you know what like Exactly as you said, there's a lot of positives to be drawn from that in terms of our ability to generate power. And yes, everything's about efficiency, but irrespective of being efficient, like in a swim stroke, for instance, there's still a small percentage of the stroke whereby you have to express power. So if your capacity to express strength and power is very, very high, by default, you're using a much smaller capacity of your central nervous system to, to facilitate that powerful stroke. So you can be faster than someone who's a lot weaker. You just got to drag more mass through the water but then obviously if you're efficient it becomes it's no longer a problem so there's definitely pros and cons but for me you know um from what i think i think i speak for joe as well this is never about becoming a world record breaking iron man this is about proving that this can be done and you know whatever muscle mass holds is and encourages through that
0: yeah 100% joe if you got anything to add on that one from your perspective in terms of your training so far or in terms of like the half you did uh last summer do you feel like sort of being sort of a big track dude was detrimental to your performance or do you feel like you got through it pretty well?
1: I think big learning curve for me was I did two years ago, I did John O'Groats of Land's End, uh, the cycle, which was a thousand and three miles in 10 days. And again, wasn't a cyclist uh, prepared for kind of 90 days before it. And I think when I reflect and I look back, one of the biggest mistakes that I made was a underfueled, fueled um, and B didn't accommodate enough resistance training to support that because actually the volumes of sessions that I was doing and the way in which I'd structured in terms of like work, business and everything else didn't allow me to facilitate the time spent on the bike and then also the resistance sessions as well, as well as potentially not kind of adequately fueling and taking that as seriously as I should have. Um, I believe, um, and then exactly the same with the half Ironman as well, I believe that kind of this time around with the position that both myself and Mark are in, um, the knowledge, experience, the people that we have around us and I think our just perspective in terms of the journey, the process we're looking at going through Um, I think, obviously, in in terms of obviously looking at fueling strategies, accommodating, obviously, you know resistance training throughout, focusing on being more resilient, being strong, Um, looking at, obviously, the injury-preventation side of things, and, uh, in my opinion as well, wanting to look like um, a bit of a hybrid, I suppose. I think Mark's exactly the same in terms of, you know, you you want to look aesthetically pleasing, uh, you want to feel like an athlete, and you want to perform like an athlete. And I think that's the big thing. We don't want to be you know, all one-sided. I think it's that balance. And yeah, there's going to be trade-offs exactly as Mark said. Uh, but I think, you know, big thing is this isn't a competition. It's not a race, you know, fundamentally all that really matters is that we just make it to the end in one piece without dying. So, you know, as long as long like, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily about speed, you know, um, and, it, and it's just going to come through kind of physical fortitude and, and the kind of mental resilience, I think.
2: I'm going for that Daniel Craig moment when we get out of the channel, mate. That's what I'm going for.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Um, like one of the things, the key things you mentioned there was resilience. So do you feel like this is going to be a bigger physical battle or a bigger mental battle? Mental, 100%. For me, at least.
2: Um, because up until probably a couple of weeks ago, I had absolutely zero belief in my abilities from the channel. I didn't mean it impaired my commitment to anything I was doing i still committed wholeheartedly um but like i was just like i don't know if i can even fucking do this and i think the truth is a lot of people talk about unwavering self-belief and like oh, i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it like my foot <laughs> about four uh, four or five weeks into learning to open water swim i committed myself to do a 500 meter swim race which took me 25 minutes Right, <laughs> that's a long time to swim 500 meters i can now do a k in sort of 25 minutes so now i'm starting to believe it's possible but, yeah, the whole concept of people believing from the get-go that it's always going to be possible, in my opinion, is slightly disingenuous. Um, so every single session carries with it some kind of carryover, some kind of lesson that could be extrapolated and, and can contribute to your mental resilience. Because if it was easy and you knew from day dot you were going to do it, then I think that wouldn't be... Truthful, and we are going to run into difficulties. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be very dark moments, especially when you're spending 12 or so hours swimming face down in a very cold, very choppy sea. Like, you need to build the resilience en route to allow you to then master that. So yeah, I have no, absolutely no reservations whatsoever in saying initially, like, I knew I was, go- I was going to give it everything I've got, but I doubted my ability to be able to do it. It's only now that my belief is beginning to build a little bit. Um, so for, for me, yeah, it's been a, a much bigger mental challenge so far than it has physically
0: yet. So from that perspective, Mark, would you say that this resilience comes from just these small little wins day in, day out, just getting it done when you didn't want to do it? So you kind of win the moment and now just build a confidence and resilience off the back of that?
2: because I think, again, it's all in my personal opinion and my anecdotal experience. Like, resilience doesn't come from one huge swinging moment. It is just those little battles on a daily basis. You know, before we jumped on here, I spoke about last week, I had to fit 10 training sessions into five and a half days because of blood test restrictions and stuff like that. That was really fucking hard. I was really tired towards the end of the week. And obviously, as my body continued to adapt, doing things like that is going to become easier and easier. But it all starts in the mind. Like, if my mind hadn't just like there was zero motivation involved i did not want to do any of the things in the latter half of that week it all came down to an intrinsic pull and i can bitch and moan as much as i want i know and i can rely on discipline is going to get me through that and just continually exposing yourself to small little stimuli on a daily basis almost like micro cuts that you then have to repair from is in my opinion how you build resilience i think it is ross in his his book resilience that says you cannot rush resilience you can only rush quitting and if you try and rush that process of getting very resilient, you are going to end up failing. So for us, you know, taking two years to train seems like an extraordinarily long amount of time. But I'd argue that it's actually the, the appropriate amount of time to become appropriately resilient for the challenge.
0: Yeah, very nice. Resilient with the mind and the body. Joe, If you got any sort of experiences to date in terms of building resilience, whether it's from the Land's End on a growth challenge to Half Fire money done, Various bodybuilding competitions, growing businesses, all that kind of stuff.
1: I think exactly the same with Mark. Like physically, I don't think that's that's the problem. You know, fundamentally, it's, as stupid as it sounds, I break that down into kind of one foot in front of the other or, you know, one stroke in front of the other. I think that from a physical perspective, that's, that's never really the issue because um, I believe that you've always kind of got it in there. But exactly the same, it's, it's the mentality. And I think, you know, if If we both weren't um, like fearful and scared shitless when we first decided to do this, it isn't really a challenge. If there wasn't that little bit in your mind that kind of you started to question yourself, like, "Am I really, truly capable of doing this?" Because again, when we look at like skill acquisition and we look at like specificity, like again, the furthest I've swam is you know 1.2 miles, I think. Um, and that wasn't really done with, you know, much, much kind of skill or, or much 10, but much kind of technical prowess. It was more just literally but like brute force that got me through. Uh, and so I think there's always that thought process. I, I know that, I, you know, I speak on behalf of myself and Mark whereby, you know, the run in the cycle isn't going to be, you know, I think that's the least of our worries. We've almost part of that as in like, you know, we know that like physically and mentally, um we're going to be able to get through that. I think it's absolutely the swim. And I think that's the thing that scared the living daylights out of the both of us. But I think that's then the driving force that has exactly as Mark's talked about him turning up, doing 10 sessions, getting up and doing the work when you don't want to do the work, because if you knew you had it in your locker and you knew it was comfortable and you knew it was attainable and achievable, your desire and your willing and want to really um, turn up when you really don't fancy it is not going to be there. Or our ability to go and drive five hours to go to Lincoln for a four-hour training session with you know with a new swim coach, we would have just kind of you know patched it off. So I think that fear, that uncertainty, that unknown, that being like terrible at something, um, is exciting and fearful at the same time. And I think that's the thing that keeps us moving forwards, that keeps us on our toes, that keeps us challenging ourselves, that forces us to level up, that forces us to um, really kind of tap into actually what are we made of. Um, and how far are we now really willing to push and to what depths are we willing to go to make sure that going into 2022, we've left no stone or left unturned. And we know standing at John O'Groats that it's going to be tough, but we've done absolutely everything in our power to make sure that we will be making it to the end.
0: Yeah, outstanding. Very, very cool. So obviously with um, triathlons, you're essentially training for three different sports. So would I be right in saying that swimming is the most important one that you're focused on at the moment? And in terms of like your whole periodized kind of schedule, would you say that's the main thing you put all your kind of money into at the moment? And I say money, but effort, time and uh, intention and stuff like that. And then swimming and cycling just kind of bolted on as kind of like maintenance-based work. Would I be right in saying that? And if so, how is that going to evolve over the, over the course of the next or 22, 24 months?
2: I mean, I think, um, swimming is arguably, and there's going to be people out there who might debate on this. Swimming is arguably the most technical one of all of the disciplines. Like there is so, so much to it. And. In order to make ourselves as efficient as possible, you know, reverting back to my sentiments earlier in in this podcast in order to get as efficient as possible, we obviously sought out and then have, you know, invested in the expertise of the guy who is the most efficient human in the water of all time, Adam Ocean Walker. So, what he does, he, he doesn't say. Oh, this is how you swim, and then let's change this, this, and this. It's like right, let's strip it right back to basics. Like you, it's almost like learning to walk again. So now we have dozens, if not hundreds, of hours of skill acquisition, practice, and repetition to do of that. So yeah. In terms of the volume i wouldn't say that the swimming is taking the priority of the volume but in terms of the importance for me at least it is taking the priority of importance and i would always do that session first in the day when i've got double sessions to ensure that i'm as fresh as i possibly can be and i'm giving it the entirety of my you know sort of my mental bandwidth and i also find it the most difficult in terms of it's just so alien because when you're running or when you're cycling, when you know you've really pushed and you're in a hurt lock and you need to pull the pace back a little bit, it's still a very comfortable place to be. Because worst case scenario on a bike, you just put your foot on the floor. Running, you just bring the pace right down. In the water, it's very difficult to learn to to to, to like learn to jog in a water if that makes sense. Um, and it's just learning to spend more and more and more time in the water and, and just normalize and become comfortable in every situation. And to add to that, we're gonna be getting smashed in the face by waves. It's gonna, it's gonna get pretty spicy, but yeah, um, it's certainly the most important one for me. You know, Resistance has been our stomping ground mine and Joe's both for God, no, over, over a decade for me individually. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable there cycling is just about spending time on the bike, but it is relatively time consuming and running again, we can always be more and more efficient. And that's arguably the one that presents the highest risk of injury for me specifically. Um, but yeah, I think the swim is the one that's kind of that, that looms over me each and every week that I really, really pay due diligence to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, from like one of the challenges or many challenges potentially over the course of the next 22 to 24 months, what, what do you foresee um you mentioned injury prevention there or minimizing risk of injuries it could be huge potentially like immune function what do you see like the potential challenges is there a case of still finding the time to do this because it's very going to be very time consuming you've both got very successful businesses like what is the main things that's probably going to cause you the most challenges
1: yeah, well, I think even just like, if you look back at the, I, I did an Instagram story on this the other day. Even if you look at the month of October, uh, we had our first training camp uh, in the lakes at the at the start of the month, just gone. And I tore my hamstring chasing Mark up a hill you know, on on, on, day, on day one. And then that was kind of, that was then kind of us. Then for the next couple of days, we were able to get some swims in, but you know, it, it wasn't severe, thankfully. It was only a grade one tear, but then that put me back, obviously kind of lower body loading, not being able to do um, anywhere near as much over the last three, four weeks. Haven't, wasn't able to run for the best part of two weeks. My kind of hard interval-based sessions on the bike got obviously stripped back to some kind of steady pace sessions. Um, And, you know, there's always going to be like uh, these kind of aches, pains, niggles, injuries that are always going to crop up, especially with volume increasing Um, and, and obviously with frequency being so high and the amount of kind of stress that we're putting on ourselves not just from like a physical perspective, but from, you know, an emotional, mental perspective, not just within training, but also within kind of business, within like the balance, this kind of social relationship side of things as well. And everything that, you know, all of that kind of presents and and the kind of, I suppose, kind of allostatic load that we're now going to be um, exposed to over the coming weeks and over the coming months so yeah certainly you know i think we, we both said that um throughout the course of the next kind of two years or so we're probably going to be training with some form of eight pain niggle injury um at any given time and that's just something that we're just going to have to work around accommodate sometimes we're going to be suboptimal but it's just that ability just to turn up do the reps do the yards you know put it put in the time um, to the best of our ability and look after the recovery protocols as, as much as as much as possible. So I think definitely uh, the injury side, the immune side. And then I think as well, like in terms of just looking at the uh, time, how, how time intensive this is considering the other roles and responsibilities that we have in life. But one big thing that we talked about from the start was like this um, ability to not just survive through this, but thrive through this. Um, our ability now to show what can be done, not just from a kind of uh, body perspective in terms of challenge, but how we can manage business, how you can manage balance, and then how you can support the, the brain side as well. And we can um, still continue to give our absolute utmost to each of those compartments that I suppose
0: ultimately make us you know, who we are and what we do. So it's the complete periodized life, not just the training, it's literally everything, 100%. Um, so how are you kind of managing your training load at the moment because obviously you're doing a lot at the moment and you've got a lot to do over the next sort of two years as well so do you have someone that's looking after that for you um, to move like the emotion out of it perhaps and they could just look at things more um, sort of like data driven or you kind of monitoring everything uh, by your own sort of
2: yeah. So initially in, in the beginning, um, I was actually being coached by you, wasn't I Joe? Because we'd been pursuing some kind of physique goals and stuff like that. And then when we kind of became a team, the dynamic obviously shifted and it was really important that we that we were on a level playing field. We were teammates. So then we kind of outsourced it to coach Dan Reeve, um, who you'll find on Instagram, who is like, just the epitome of a hard bastard. He is an incredible coach. He's like one of the few people in the world who's done Decker Ironman, uh, I, I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm not gonna say it, but he, I think he holds multiple like world strongest man as a natural at his bodyweight class awards Great, you know um yeah, he's like he's from the channel, he's done like uh he's just done some crazy shit like Arctic marathons, he is just the epitome even you know at the hybrid athlete he used to play pro football for Southampton, very very um experienced individual, old as fuck, he won't mind me saying that as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> um he's. I used to work alongside him at FLF and he did some programming and periodization for me when I was competing in jiu-jitsu. Um, and he just knows his stuff. He lives and breathes sports science, specifically strength coaching. He's very, very well rounded, very well educated, uh, on, on that front. So he was kind of a logical standout choice for us and, for me at least, and I probably speak for Joe on this behalf as well, like he he has the whole package in terms of he understands the psychology of performance and extreme endurance because he's been there and has done it and he's worked with multiple prolific athletes. And then obviously he has a depth of understanding of the actual science as well. But but for him, what was really refreshing, what came from him was like, look, the reality is for the next six to 12 months, you can almost wing it a little bit in terms of that's not what we're going to do. But he was like, I don't want you to take it super seriously just yet because for the last 18 to 12 months, you know, you're going to have to go balls in everything, everything you've got. And it's going to be everything that you live, sleep, eat, fucking dream about. But for now, you know if you want to go climb a mountain because you know, you want to get a weekend off with the family, or whatever, go do it. If you want to, or if you need to skip a training session because you've got injury or you mentally you're fatigued or whatever, do it, take the most of it now. And I think that was a really refreshing approach is that kind of like, look, you know, you can have a life at this point And then as it builds, it will build, but he oversees everything. Um, for me, I'm doing 10 sessions a week right now. Cause I get an additional swim session in, um, which might have to be pinned because of, um, lockdown and stuff. Um, and at this point in time at least the volume's not that massive. It probably equates to roughly fifteen hours a week. Um so it's very, very manageable. But obviously, you know, we're not naive and we do understand that it is going to continually grow. Um, so we'll see what, what happens as and when. And everything's gonna be progressive in nature. So, you know, owing to the law of general adaptation syndrome, our, our business, our operations will adapt as the stressor increases. So
0: Yeah, very nice. So is it almost this kind of blast and kind of cruiser approach of the next little period and last 18 months or 12 months, just really dial it up and then everything's like all in. So he's happy to give you some autonomy and ownership at the moment, Um, kind of like very kind of guideline structure. But then as you get close to the event, it has to be far more specific, no sessions missed, no kind of, I guess, no stone left in turn type of approach. Would it be right in saying he's got that kind of approach with it?
2: I mean, it remains to be seen, and obviously this will this will uh, come out as we get closer and closer to the event. At the minute, it's a brilliant relationship with Dan. We'll bo- probably both be cursing the fuck out of him in like 12 months or so. <laughs> but like, what's he playing at? He did once mention about sleeping without a duvet just to acclimatize for cold for extended periods of time. And we still don't know if he's joking or not yet. <laughs> but is it vividly that being thrown around? Um, but yeah, like everything is, he does pretty much leave it to, up to us. I um, understand that we've got a back catalogue of experiences as, as athletes in multiple different disciplines. So he does leave it up to us, but I'm sure that he will continually upskill what he's, not necessarily upskill, it's probably the wrong word to use, but he will continually um, do more and more of what he's, is required from him to facilitate us being successful as, as time goes on.
1: Yeah, I think a big thing to add as well, that like we had intended to do this in 2021. Like we initially hadn't, like we actually hadn't- I'm so
2: had- fucking glad we didn't. <laughs>
1: Yeah, when we first sat down, well, first and foremost, we were gonna we were gonna we were gonna pay a fisherman a couple hundred quid just to see us across the channel, <laughs> and then uh, and then just and then we were gonna get to Calais. We we're gonna put our running shoes on, and we were then gonna run to Paris straight away. Little did we know that um, yeah, we needed to pilot a boat, and obviously there wasn't one available to 2022. Uh, also, if we swim the channel, um, and then you know get onto dry land at Calais and start running. We're actually technically illegal immigrants, I believe in that correct Mark.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I did once we solidified the plan was I was like, I'm going to get a cheeky uh, chat with, with Dan Reed cause I know he's done stuff like this before in the past. And it was kind of like a, a recce. I was like, like, what do we need to be aware of? Cause we're, we're idiots. What, what's our biggest danger right now to us? And he was like, first and foremost, like the channel is going to be the worst 12 hours of your life. I was like, brilliant, cool. <laughs> and then he was like, then he started to go through logistics. He's like, you need an a, a accredited pilot which we then had to look into. And those guys, yeah, like you just need it. It isn't essential, you need it, but it is pretty punchy from like a financial investment standpoint. But Obviously they're there to keep you safe. And then yeah, I didn't know that we couldn't just like touch base at Calais and just crack on. We then have to get on a ferry, and this is still true for the very best of our research, have to get on a ferry back to Dover and then get a ferry through legitimate port at Calais. Otherwise you are then illegal immigrant. So apparently it works both ways, who knew? But yeah, we've got to, wow. we've got to do that. <laughs>
1: So yeah, so this was supposed to be a, a kind of year-long, year-long. When we first sat down, it was going to be 2021. But in hindsight, upon reflection, looking at it now, um, having having the two years is actually far more advantageous. Um, I think just from just from all aspects of life, um, I think more so. I think more so than anything else. I think otherwise it would have potentially, or not potentially, would have uh, been detrimental. I think to other aspects and other areas. Whereas at least this is slow, steady, progressive. Uh, financially as well. It's it's not as as devastating. Um all it all in a wana we can you know slowly kind of uh progressively uh, buy things as as we as we go along. So yeah, I think uh, I think the two years is is certainly better. But going back to your original question, sorry, do I know what I'll track um like having Dan yeah is is incredible. I think obviously massive thing for us was just having somebody that had been there done it, that's got the t-shirt and it's got the credibility from you know both a practical and, and a theoretical side is uh, incredible. and know emotionally for both of us, just having that stress taken away um, has been, has been phenomenal.
0: Yeah, brilliant. So how, how long do you think or plan for, it's going to take you from day one, right? And so where you set off on the bike, right down to Paris, how many days do you think it's going to take?
2: The, the best we can give at this point is a window because you're not given a specific day for your channel crossing. You're given a window. Oh so we've booked our channel crossing between the 16th and the 23rd of august 2022 so we're the second swimmers with this pilot in that window so another team will be crossing before us and obviously they'll come back and get us so we could be crossing on the 17th we could be crossing on 23rd we don't know so we can only give it within a bracket of days joe obviously you've done the the lands to uh, uh, sorry the john groats to dover roughly cycle before so you've got a rough understanding of that and then the the, the channel crossing will take us between 10 to 12 hours. We anticipate dependent, obviously currents, weather systems, all that sort of stuff. And then the, the one, six mile, five mile run, we're looking to probably five and a half years to
0: get that boxed off. I think the key word is adaptability for this whole event, really, not only from the training perspective, uh, but the event itself, if not quite sure in the exact sort of days, times and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, for us
2: actually, it is kind of a double-edged sword because, from a physiological standpoint, it would be advantageous if we tip up to Dover and are like, "Oh, you can't, you can't go for another four days," because then we get four days of recovery, and we can probably even get out into the into the port of Dover and have a bit of a swim, have a bit of a splash about, and recover properly. But psychologically, then it's just going to be looming over you for days. You know that the big fucker is coming. Um, whereas, obviously, yeah. From a psychological standpoint, it might be better to literally get there, tip up the night, like, right, you're swimming tomorrow, brilliant, let's get cracked on, let's get it done. But, you know, it is what it is, and we'll have to play, we'll have, to, that, that's probably one of the biggest things from a psychological standpoint that I am anticipating. I had this the other day, I was just driving in the car, and all of a sudden, like, I really, I put myself in that position, I was visualizing how my i going to feel when I'm walking into the sea off the coast of Dover, knowing, right, this is it, this is all happening, this is in the focal point of two years of preparation and it's
0: go time. How's that going to feel? That's the big one for me that I'm going to prepare myself for. Yeah, and I
1: think.
0: How, the- how are you, sorry, Mark, how, how are you preparing for that mentally? Is that just through like visualization? Is that just getting into more uh, open water swimming, just building a confidence day? Is there? Is anything particularly you're doing with a mindset and mental preparation uh, perspective? Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously just getting really, really comfortable in the water is is a part only a
2: small part but you know just learning to to be as at home in the water as you are when you just stood up that's that's really really important so and like there's no panic there's never any adrenaline just being super super chilled and obviously being as efficient as we can from a swimming standpoint but then yeah i I want to for one of a better phrase unearth like uncover every stone or whatever the saying is um to, to make sure that i'm prepared for every individual situation so uh i can't remember what podcast it was but i remember joe you listened to it as well you know with uh Professor Steve Peters, I think it was Chris Hoy wasn't it, yeah. And he was saying actually, what's advantageous is to visualize and go through every worst case scenario what, what are you going to do if what are you going to do if what are you going to do if so that nothing has the potential or capacity to catch me off guard and put me on the back foot and then if I visualize it and I, I put myself mentally on that back foot, how am I going to react and respond to continue to progress? I mean for me, the worst thing will be like if it's going really slow and it's really painful and every, everyone's going to hit that mental sticking point there's going to be a point of both of us are like i don't want to fucking do this and i can't do this i can't keep going what's going to happen then how do i respond then so i really really want to sort of just play with that that thought for the next couple of
0: years and make sure that i'm as prepared as i possibly can be so it's like if then planning if this happens then i do this
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and in another podcast we listened to, was obviously, that brilliant uh, high performance podcast with, with Johnny Wilkinson was, you know, not going into it with the naivety of I have unwavering self belief, I'm going to achieve this. Because some really bad shit might happen. The weather can get really pretty, pretty aggressive on that channel crossing. But it's it's opening, like daring to open that door of curiosity and saying, okay, so what happens if I get smashed by a wave, flipped on my back, lose my goggles? What do I do then? What do I do if I'm swallowing seawater and vomiting? What do I do if I like, start cramping really badly? Like, how will I behave then? And just open that door and be like, well, you know, I can't say that I'm going to be able to do it. No one can say that because you can't see the future. But I, I know, well, what will my absolute best look like? If my back really, really gets put up against the wall and I'm in shit state and I'm trying not to drown, how will I behave and what will I do? And then kind of investigate that avenue of exploration and just hope that, you know, on the day I've got
0: all of the intestinal fortitude to get the job done. No, solid. Very, very cool. Joe, have you got anything sort of adding up from your own uh, mental preparation so far?
1: I think obviously with, with regards to kind of where, where we both are at the moment, I think one thing that I will definitely say, like both doing this together... Um, has been uh, incredible because I, I certainly know like i speak for myself like seeing mark going and getting after it and going and doing the work and going and doing the necessary and going out and doing his training sessions pushes and forces me like big thing is obviously i don't want to let myself down but then most importantly as well i don't want to let mark down so i think that kind of degree of accountability so whilst yet there's a kind of self-actualization of terms in terms of like um, like what we're now wanting to do this for and why I think also when I, when I strip it back and you think about um, just like the team and just wanting to make sure that now you can do your part. You make sure that you're now not now letting anybody else down because I think like sometimes it can be easy to let yourself down at points, you know, like to cut corners um, and to cheat yourself. Uh, but, but when you have somebody else that's uh, going through hell, that's doing the work, that's doing the yards, that's doing the reps, that, you know, and they're expecting the same from you. Um, I think that energy is, is so powerful. Um, And I think that's really the thing that's actually allowed both of us just to like step up um, and just do, do the necessary and yeah, work, work, work on on all the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. No, cool. So one of the things you, um, we can kind of sort of elaborate on there then is kind of like your daily kind of non-negotiables. Would you say you have any that you do no matter what? Do you have, like, um, like you kind of mentioned the other day in your own sort of training, like a minimal kind of goal and a maximal kind of goal, and you kind of float between these two brackets? Do you have any kind of set kind of, yeah, non negotiables from that perspective?
1: Yeah, I think, I'll it, uh, No, it's up to you, dude. So I think me at the moment, sleep is the biggest one. Uh, I think that's probably been the biggest non negotiable that I've really kind of dialed in myself because I think. Uh, When work gets busy, when life gets busy, one of the easiest things to do is just start to neglect your sleep and you can, you know that you can get away with it from a short term perspective, but over the long term can really start to kind of catch up. So I think for me, just seven to nine hours, like every single night and just making sure that that kind of uh, rigidity in terms of like bedtime, wait time can be as consistent as possible. Also, not beating myself up if you know I wake up in the morning actually still feeling a little bit fatigued, and I actually then realize I need to sleep for a little bit longer. So instead of getting up at seven, I now get up at half seven, or I get up at eight, um, if training load is potentially being more significant and not feeling like bad or not feeling like a failure because of that. Um, I think that's been kind of like a non-negotiable in terms of sleep, and then also kind of some flexibility that I've now given definitely given myself. Um, and then for me. Um, with, especially with like, the little injuries that I picked up over the last month. Like just now having the standard of, right, okay, regardless of whatever happens, you get seven sessions done. You get all, your, all, you get all my kind of aerobic-based work done. Um, and then just based upon kind of how I'm feeling in terms of um, just general well, well-being, readiness to train, et cetera, that will then facilitate how many resistance sessions I'll then kind of accommodate. But the, like, the minimum requirement for me is seven without fail. And then obviously nine for me is obviously the goal that I'm working and striving towards uh, at this present moment in time. Uh, And then just basic things like tracking my food, making sure that I'm getting a a minimum of four to five portions of protein in per day. Just like those basic things. Um, Food hasn't become really, really dialed in for me as of yet because I've basically gone from three years of not tracking food since I came off a bodybuilding stage to now, just kind of again, progressively just getting myself back in tune and back in track or back on track with myself, my caloric set point, um, and you know, my fueling capacity from that side.
0: That's a really interesting point you put there in terms of the training. So, you do say seven sessions, like non negotiable, then if you feel good, then you push it to nine, so you auto regulate that. How do you, how can you determine with yourself whether you are a little bit tired, a little bit like just fatigue and any daily freshers? And they have you got your own kind of daily KPIs that you check in with yourself with?
1: Yeah, so I definitely think obviously I, I kind of have been using had been using a Whoop, but for me, like looking at the data and then actually looking at how I'd been feeling, they didn't necessarily kind of align, and that was probably stressing me out more than <laughs> more than benefiting me, if anything. It definitely make- been there. It was making me feel worse. So, I think fundamentally for me, it's obviously looking at performance metrics, you know, just tracking progressive overload and just looking at numbers. Um, again, when I'm out on the bike, out, out on the runs, obviously looking at basic things like resting, heart rate, et cetera. And then also just how am I feeling when I wake up in the morning? You know, where is my workload at this present moment in time? When I look at stress in terms of other aspects of life, where is that at the moment? What are the demands and what are the strengths that are being placed on me? And where does my energy now need to be best placed? Um, in order for me to be able to facilitate the work that's required. So um, I think that's it for me. And yeah, just kind of having the little kind of knocks, aches, niggles, pains, and just kind of um, looking at now realizing from experience that it's not always go hard or go home um, because I've made that mistake before. And then I end up just completely buggered.
0: I think there's definitely an over-reliance of data and devices and stuff these days, like 100%. Remember when I used to like measure heart rate variability, like heart rate variability would say that, no, I'm very fatigued, I'm overtrained, and I wake up and I feel great and it's very contradictory. Where the next day, like, I feel like absolute shit, and completely fucked, I can't do anything. And it's like, yeah, smash smash a huge session. I'm like, Mm -hmm. what is going on? And a couple of stressed me out and messed my head quite a lot as well. So I think, you know, experience is incredibly important. And I think that's why having the coach that you do have now to overlook everything and have that sort of experience, to sort of give you advices and lead you is incredibly important for sure.
2: I share that same sentiment with a whoop. Like I don't think I'm just, I'm not just singling out whoop here for legal reasons, but like um, <laughs> like I, I experienced exactly the same. I got almost anxiety about getting into bed on time and switching off and what sort of shit. Cause I was like, what what color am I going to get in the morning? How, what's my percentage of recovery going to be? And it was like, it was just unreliable is probably what I'd say. You know, when you get to our our stage of i suppose being athletic i suppose joe would call ourselves you know training for over a decade or so you just get to know your body and you just get to know when you're tanked you know if if, if when you get out of bed in the morning and walk up the stairs your legs are still burning you're like right yeah I'm pulling the day off um or if you just like for me i find myself procrastinating and like just gazing at stuff and scrolling on social media i know mentally i'm getting pretty tired at that point um and just sort of regulating as a result sometimes there's an argument you just got to push through it like like last week was a perfect example and um Again, there's going to be an element of just learning to, to operate when you are very, very tired, but yeah, I think sleep, I, I'd echo Joe's sentiment is the biggest non-negotiable for me. Like I, my non-negotiable now is to have eight and a half hours in bed, obviously trying to sleep for as much of that as possible, but knowing that I must be in bed at a certain time and then I get up at a certain time has been hugely, hugely helpful because you know when we look at how we've we've progressed in business over the last 18, 24 months, myself, especially a lot of that has been down to just getting up very early and just grinding and you become emotionally attached to that. Whereas now actually that's hugely counterproductive for for what we want to achieve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Do you have any other sort of non-negotiables in terms of amount of food you eat in a day, tracking your calorie intake, protein feedings like Joe, do you have anything around that or is it a case of, right, my main non-negotiable is just sleep. From the from the point of view from this project, I guess at least eight day bagels a day. That's yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I must do twenty five square bars a week. No. Um, so I've been tracking food. I think when my fitness pal puts me in nearly two years now, which is something I I'll have great pride oh, over. But
1: five hundred and fifty six days, mate. I checked yesterday.
2: Yes, there you go. 500, so 557 days now then. Um, it is, it's very, very habitual for me now. Um, so I always track calories, even if it's completely off plan, i will always enter some data just so I've got a kind of a ballpark estimate. And I think that contributes to the ability to be intuitive. Because if you just think, oh, it's about this, then you never really learn. So even if I'm deliberately having a fuck it moment, I will still enter it just so I've got data to look back upon. But yeah, uh, so I've been tracking for ages. For me, it's like just hit a protein target every day and, and it hit my um, other macronutrient targets to the very best of my ability. But if there's a bit of waywardness in terms of you know one substrate outweighs the other on a given day, I'm not that concerned just yet.
0: So just to touch on the nutrition um, side of it for a second, how have you found eating for, say, bodybuilding, martial arts, rugby, all that kind of stuff, and now actually for a very big endurance sport? What are the kind of key learning kind of points of view from that perspective Uh, as anything that's really kind of jumped out in terms of just able to maintain and maximize work capacity and performance.
2: I mean, I think that the the things that I can draw comparisons to from, from jujitsu to this is digestibility. Cause one problem I really used to get with jitsu is I just could not eat or stomach anything for three hours before I rolled because like, just that level of like adrenaline and exhaustion really used to play havoc with my stomach. And I'd just be like literally regurgitating my mouth, which is not what you want when someone's like bearing over on top of you, <laughs> sticking sticky up in the face. And it, that was became really problematic. Like, how can I get enough fuel on um, without then like being detrimental to my performance? And it's the same comparison I can draw to now what I'm doing um, in the realm of endurance. Like if I've had food too close to getting in the water or being on the bike, again, it's that same feeling of kind of like really feeling pretty Uncomfortable in in the stomach and the GI, um, but then that's probably where the comparisons end. Moving forward, it's then just about you know how much can well yeah. It probably does some comparisons too much in bodybuilding because at one point when I was, when I was a, lot, a lot larger individual, my food intake was extraordinarily high. So I did have to find the same kind of hacks, I guess for want of a better phrase, of how to get high caloric um, intakes and specifically carbohydrates in the workout perimeter. There's those same kind of comparisons that can be drawn there. But so far, like, foods at a very manageable level for me. It's just something you have to be proactive with planning, especially if I've got two slightly longer sessions or more intense sessions in one day, I have to be really proactive with planning how I'm going to get the volume of carbohydrates in because otherwise, you know, you'll experience yourself. You get to like 8 PM and you've got 300 grams of carbs to go. Oh fuck. I'm going to get that in. So it's just planning is the main consideration for me really.
0: Yeah. What hundred percent Joe. Have you got any kind of thoughts from the nutrition side, any sort of changes with what you're doing? Obviously you mentioned you get back into tracking now, but have you seen any kind of noticeable comparisons between what you do now with bodybuilding, trying to get large amounts of food in, specifically carbohydrates, and any kind of gastrointestinal stress, any issues or challenges around there?
1: Yeah, so I echo exactly kind of what Mark said. When I when I look at how can I um, reflect upon like previous experiences and just look at like for likes, I think obviously when I did the John O'Groats Lands End, like digestibility and palatability of foods were the, the two biggest con- contributors. Um, and like you have these intentions of like what you're planning to eat or what you'd anticipated you were going to eat. But then actually when you're thinking about uh, waking up in the morning, you're not sure where you're going, the potential things that may go wrong, um, just that general kind of adrenaline, I suppose, and a little bit of kind of uh, fear, anxiety, excitement. Um, again, like my ability just to kind of like facilitate food is very, 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 very difficult, like through, through throughout the course of that, those kind of 10 days and if i remember correctly i pretty much just lived on loaves of saurine and squares bars and bananas just because i couldn't re- and if i look back at like the meals that i'd actually consumed as a whole like i actually struggled just because of that exact reason either because I, I got to dinner time and i was just so tired that i just didn't have the energy to like really kind of sit and eat a proper meal i just wanted something that was quick easy and palatable um, and or like I wake up in the morning and I'd almost be like on edge and a little bit anxious and not wanting not wanting to eat. And then I was just kind of fueling throughout the day with yeah, soaring squares um and bananas. And I think that was a real kind of like learning curve for me, I suppose, more so more so than anything else. Right now, um yeah, like I've been kind of in a period of, of like maintenance, I suppose, the last couple of years since I come away from I came away from bodybuilding. Um, like always have like my kind of um, non-negotiables that I'd have in place in terms of like protein feedings etc being very intuitive and being very aware having tracked food obsessively for the best part of four or five years so coming away from that and being able to maintain a level of physique that supported and complemented me was great but now dialing things back in again um, has definitely uh, helped because it's allowed me to understand actually do you know what a point I was probably under fueling just because as Mark said like it's so easy when you're like busy and you've got things to do to, to skip a meal, not plan, not prepare, not actually facilitate and get enough food in. So actually tracking now for me is is way more about, yeah, like making sure I, I now am eating and facilitating the food that's required. Whereas I suppose with bodybuilding, you're almost just trying to extract and take when, when you're dieting anyway, just trying to pull pull calories from from any, you know, anywhere you can and maximize the volume as much as possible, make them go as far as you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just highlighted a really key point there with the um with the event itself. You know, if we're struggling to actually get enough food and on a daily basis, like yes, we can manage a calorie deficit on one day, but that's clearly going to accumulate over the course of days to weeks. And by the end of it, you can have huge amounts of like immunosuppression, your recovery's gonna be really poor and everything else in between and you're essentially just going to fade off uh, the face of the earth really so just make sure you can hit those daily quotas whether it's through obviously your calorie takes number one priority but ideally mostly by a by base. but if not then just getting as much sort of fat in there as well just so you're not on that huge again calorie deficit and get all like the compromises and trade-offs associated with that so i think See, that's I normally a huge have, thing
2: i normally have a massive appetite So it's not normally that problematic for me to get food in. If someone says diet, my ass falls out. But like if it comes to eating food, I can eat enormous amounts of food. But I get sick of the taste of sweet stuff after a while, even after a few hours on the bike, just munching like size um, HBCD in my my water and then gels and squares bars. I just crave something that's like salty Mm. like an actual savory food. Um, But yeah, like... It's going to definitely be a challenge. The amount of food is definitely going to be a challenge, but it's probably my favorite part of the challenge, to be honest.
0: <laughs> the, the eating challenge. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting you say that because uh, the research and does back this up a lot. And when you speak to a lot of endurance athletes, their palate will change throughout the event itself. Where at the start, they're looking at more perhaps sweet, say, uh, like sweet based foods, but then towards the end, it goes more sort of savory and salty and kind of high fat meals. That's where the palatability kind of changes, the palate changes. So yeah, that would be definitely something the
2: other day, getting out of the water after doing a couple of K, I actually couldn't eat a squares bar. I was like, if I look at another squares bar right now, I'm going to vomit. And I never thought that would happen. I never thought that'd see the day.
1: Was <laughs> well, there, Chris? You might know this. Was there an ultra endurance um, runner that uh, fueled basically just off fish and chips? You just she just ate fish and you just ate fish and chips. You heard of that? I can't I can't remember the lady for for the life of me, but I believe it was like an ultra endurance kind of hundred miler's plus. But apparently, all that she ate was just fish and chips. Like not, nothing, not, not, nothing, like nothing else, because that was the only thing that she could actually uh, digest and get a palatability perspective was, yeah, the only thing that she could eat. I might be wrong, but if I remember correctly on a podcast, I believe I'd, I'd heard that. It
0: was first I've heard, but um, we could definitely look at training in the gut for fish and chips, if you like, if you really want to <laughs> go down that route.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, mate. I'm not, su- I'm not sure fish and chips would be my, what would be your go-to, Mark? For me, I'm not sure it would be fish and chips.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Um, probably, maybe Five Guys, like some sort of dirty burger, would probably be what I'd go to. But then it makes me so thirsty, and I struggle to drink enough fluid as it is. So I don't know. And
1: it's just a big eating competition. Like I say, it's just an, it's just kind of yeah. fun competition,
2: really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's why, why why I joined up in the first place, to be honest <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was the only reason.
0: All uh, right, the six uh, non-negotiable bagels per day is uh, <laughs> <laughs> would definitely be yeah. ramping up. They're uh, rookie numbers at this moment, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. So going on to the sort of final question uh, for today's podcast. Um, so for an athlete to go from average to elite, what are the key, like say a top three, you would um, give them in terms of the, your advice, guidance and recommendations? Are the kind of big three things that you'd really say like you have to do this from either a physical or mental perspective to go from average right up to elite
2: i think first and foremost sorry go on joe no go on dude i think first and foremost would be make yourself accountable um because everyone has pipe dreams but if you really really want to do something that's never been done before or something that you've never done before that's that's um intimidating or scary to you by default, you're going to have mind, like times when your mind wants to retract and you, you really crave your comfort zone and you question everything around you. So you, you just have to have an individual there who is helping you see that you're serving a greater purpose and hold you accountable and, and then obviously implement a strategic plan and hold you accountable to that. I think without it, it would be extraordinarily different, difficult to just you know grind away in silence on your own with no one knowing what you're doing, what you're doing it for, how you're going to do it. I don't know if it'd even be possible. I'd argue so. I think accountability is certainly a really, really big one, either to a coach, people that care, friends, social media, whatever. But you know, arguably, a coach would be the best position to, to help facilitate it. Just make yourself accountable.
1: Yeah, awesome. I, would say, I would say building upon that, then, kind of secondly, would just be that high-performance environment. Again, this, so having the right people, having the right people around you, having the right people that are going to call you out on your bullshit. Um, and also having the people around you they 're going to put an arm around your shoulder as well, and you know tell tell you it 's okay uh people that know how you tick how you function, how you work how the how the how you can get the very best out of you I think is massive, and just having the right people around you that compliment you I think is is huge um and like I talked about before, like I believe if I was doing this myself, my application wouldn 't be as great or as significant if i didn 't have Mark doing it. Alongside like, you know us doing it together, because um, there also wouldn't be that kind of like not wanting to let somebody else down, which has been I think massively powerful for me uh, through this, even in the early stages already
2: I think off the back of that, I was add to that Joe one thing that was potentially unforeseen for me was the role of how people that are very close to you in your immediate environment actually want to keep you safe a little bit. And this was, uh, somebody I had to have a conversation with my other half with the other day. And she won't mind you telling me this, like the, the tail end of last week was really quite hard for me. And obviously just for her to look at me, just being an absolute fucking corpse of a human and continue to drag myself through pain. She just had to quit. She said like, are you actually enjoying this? Like, why are you doing this? Maybe you should take a day off. And for me in that moment, I did not need to hear that. So just very early on setting expectations with the people in your community and your network around you about, look, you know, in times like this when my head goes down. Um, I know it's fucking hard. Yes, I am enjoying it, but I'll be enjoying it in two years time for now. Like what I need from you is to just like offer me tough love and just say, stop being uh, whatever word you want to insert there and just get up and get it done um so that was really important to me like to, to ensure that uh people around me are on the same mission and and share that same vision and will hold me accountable even if it's it's difficult for them and i really do appreciate it. it's going to place a lot of emotional strain on particularly my other half to see me in a hurt locker for the best part of two years but um you know just communicating that i'm okay in the top two inches i'm absolutely fine don't worry about what the physical looks like i'm in control and just you know be as supportive as you possibly can be for, for the next couple of years so that that's what i had on to Jo's thing
0: yeah absolutely fantastic that's really sort of key three uh points to take away from there for sure so guys i want to say a big thank you for spending the last hour with me uh on the average Free podcast so for the listeners to kind of follow you both and get up-to-date uh, kind of insights and experiences and everything in between with regards to yourselves and the great european triathlon uh where can they find you where's the best place for them to go on,
1: joe uh, joe barris the coach's <laughs> coach on uh it's that exact a debate it's like that silence <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah So, <It's> wait <where> <laughs> gonna go first <laughs> you go, you go.
1: everyone's just trying to be polite <laughs> no you go first no you go first <laughs> joe barris the coach's coach on instagram uh and then joe Parrish, the coach coach on facebook as well i believe
2: uh, yeah. So for me, it's Mark Rhodes coaching with an underscore between every word, or just search the hard to kill coaching on uh, Instagram and you'll find me and then Mark Rhodes coaching and on Facebook and you'll find me there. And as you mentioned, right at the start, you have a podcast. Yeah, so we also have the Hard to Kill podcast, which is, uh, you know, in its infancy, at this point in time, but we've got some fantastic guests on, um, some really great episodes for you to listen to, and also some fantastic guests up and coming as well. We talk, I don't want to plug too much. Uh, plug, but yeah, plug, away, talk, plug away, plug <laughs> away. <laughs> we do talk um, in like, quite some depth about like, emotional intelligence, emotional sophistication, uh, resilience and all that sort of stuff off the back of people who have served in uh, the special forces and undergone some pretty, pretty extreme life events. So yeah, it makes good listening.
0: Fantastic. Gents, again, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate and value it. Um, Until next time, guys, I will speak to you very soon.